On this week's edition of New York Now, it's a month away, but next year's legislative session is top of mind for New York's newsmakers. Then, the state is facing a mental health crisis, and overdose deaths are up. We'll talk about both and what more could be done. And later, youth peer advocates are trained to offer support in times of need. We'll tell you about it and the difference they make. I'm Dan Clark, and this is New York Now. Today, the Senate majority Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. It's around this time every year that people start to make lists and check them twice. And a few weeks later, they find out if they've been naughty or nice, sort of. But I'm not talking about Santa Claus or the holiday season. I'm talking about what comes after. A time of year more special than any other at least for state government in New York. That's January, when the state legislature returns for the new legislative session and Governor Kathy Hochul sets her agenda for the new year. And right now, we don't really know what to expect. It's an election year, so this can go one of two ways. Hochul and Democrats who control the state legislature could keep it quiet at the Capitol, avoiding anything controversial that could impact next year's elections. Or they could try to make some noise, and tackle tough issues to convince voters they're worth keeping around. So we'll see what happens, but those wish lists are already coming together. Like how this week, SUNY Chancellor John King pushed for an expansion of the state's tuition assistance program at a public hearing at the Capitol. I recognize that changing TAP thresholds and award levels carries a significant cost, particularly at a time when the state faces a projected budget deficit. Yet this remains an important set of issues for state policymakers to explore. And that's just one item that lawmakers will consider next year before the legislative session wraps up in June. But turning now to substance use, mental health, and how they're connected in New York. If you watch this show, you already know how urgent the state's mental health crisis really is. Even two years ago, more than 2.8 million adults in New York had a mental health condition. That's according to the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And in the two years since, we've seen signs that this crisis isn't getting any better. More than three in 10 New Yorkers reported poor mental health in March of this year. That's according to the New York Health Foundation. And that's about the same rate that we saw in 2021 as well. At the same time, we know that overdose deaths ticked up in New York last year. And both of those issues, mental health and addiction, are often interconnected. So two advocacy groups, one focused on mental health, and one focused on addiction, have decided to team up and work on both issues together. The result is an entirely new group called the Inunity Alliance. And for more on that and the future of mental health and addiction in New York, we spoke with John Coppola, a co-director of Inunity Alliance. John, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Well, happy to be here. Thank you. So my first question is, why team up? Well, we had uh, two organizations that both uh, had a major uh, uh, focus on advocacy and and trying to ensure that communities across New York State had uh, addiction services or mental health services. And uh, in the advocacy work, uh, bigger is better. Uh, More voices is better than fewer voices. And uh, parallel tracks. uh, So we really felt it would be a really good idea to bring our advocacy efforts together and to 
pool resources and to be a stronger organization and better representatives of, of the people that we are, are advocating for. You know, when we talk about mental health and substance use, these are two areas that often intersect. And I don't think that a lot of people understand that. Can you talk about that? You, you specialized in substance use before this group. So yes. you have a very firm understanding of this. Yeah. I mean, for all of us experience uh, difficulties in our lives. Uh, and, um, you know, many of us uh, belong in families where somebody in, in our family tree had an issue with alcohol or, or drugs. So there's a biological dimension, a so social and emotional dimension. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and almost all of us at some point during our lifetime need some help and support from somebody. And uh, increasingly, I think uh, people are, are more comfortable with the thought of therapy and, and, and help. Uh, but it is a, a, a very uh, common for people to have an issue uh, with um, uh, mental health or, or addiction. And uh, probably none of our viewers today probably could say, I don't know anybody uh, who hasn't had that. So, yeah. again, unfortunately, we haven't had the infrastructure uh, or the services or the support necessary for people to easily access uh, those. If you have a young child, for instance, it's extraordinarily difficult uh, to find a good uh, a therapist or a good program because there's such a lack of resources, which is really unacceptable. And I think I'd, I would even say not even just for children. I think for regular U.S. adults, New York adults, it's tough to find a therapist for a lot of different reasons. I mean, it's tough to find them because they're out of your insurance network. It's tough to find them because you live in a rural area where a lot of people haven't settled. So there isn't access there. So I want to unpack kind of that big box for a second. What do you see as the most pressing needs in these issue areas? Well, I think, you know, we're starting to talk about it, uh, yeah. you know, resources. And that, that really starts first with workforce. Uh, are there professionals in our communities that we can turn to? Uh, are those professionals adequately supported? Uh, are the services adequately supported? Are they accessible? Right. Uh, and the simple fact of the matter is we've done a, a poor job of doing that. So consequently, we have people, you know, who are untreated, uh, undiagnosed, um, and just have not been able to access the services they need. So I think fundamentally, it's how serious are we about addressing uh, the needs that people have? And, you know, there, for, for many years, uh, cancer had a lot of stigma attached to it. Uh, and that's what we really have encountered a lot with addiction and mental health. And as we uh, seek to reduce the stigma associated, and, and I think a lot of people are being becoming much more public about their recovery uh, and, and that, that good things can happen for people who have an addiction issue or a mental health issue, that recovery is possible and that people can can get better. But but we've got to have the resources. And so workforce is a huge issue. Adequate resources is a, is a second. On the workforce issue, I spoke to the mental health commissioner in September about this, and she said to me that really the solution there should be to incentivize more people to enter these industries, and that could come in the form of scholarships for people or loan forgiveness. Personally, I don't see loan forgiveness as a great option just because if somebody doesn't have the money up front to go to school, loan forgiveness isn't going to help them. What do you think about that? How do we get more people in here to just do this work? You know, I think there's a huge opportunity, actually. Um, one of the things that's happening in, in a lot of uh, services is the people who themselves have had an issue with addiction or with a mental health challenge, uh, who would make fantastic uh, 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 peer uh, helpers, uh, peer professionals, 
people who could become social workers, psychiatrists, uh, psychologists, et cetera. Uh, nurses. Uh, there's, so, so I think part of it is really, uh, you know, building uh, that, that sense of, you know, giving back and also uh, that there are opportunities. And, you know, if you think about people who are coming out of uh, the uh, criminal legal system, uh, people who've paid their debt to society yeah. and who are now looking for an opportunity to give back, there are numerous success stories of people who uh, learn from their mistakes and we're able to help other people. Uh, so I, again, I think if we uh, look at the, the uh, composition of the communities that, that we live in and, and do the people that we are employing look like the people that we're helping. And so looking at equity, looking at you know, uh, uh, you know, structural racism, looking at um, other things that kind of keep people from engaging, I think if we do a really good job of being a welcoming profession, uh, that's our job is 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 to uh, to help to uh, create a, a public awareness of of the the good that can be done in prevention and treatment and recovery and harm reduction services and uh, and to try to uh, really help to promote that work and because it because it really makes it helps to make a, for a better community and incarcerated people that's an interesting point because incarcerated people often when they come out talk about traumas that they experienced, either at the time of the crime and times of their lives or either in the prison themselves. And I bet that would really lend a, a helpful uh, device for them to use if they entered a mental health field. I want to switch gears, though, and talk about substance use for a moment. Um, you know that overdose deaths in New York ticked up in 2022, an unfortunate thing that happened. The state is kind of entering this space that looks like harm reduction in some spaces, but at the same time, the state isn't really endorsing overdose prevention centers that have opened in New York City. So what do you see as the future of harm reduction in New York? Should it be that endorsement of those overdose prevention centers? Or are there other strategies that we can pursue to get those numbers down? I mean, I think it's very simple. Anything that we can do that's going to save somebody's life, we should do. Uh, there are people who use drugs and uh, people who have addiction um, and, uh, and if they're not ready yet to, to sort of let go of that, or if they have no intention of doing so, then to what extent can we help those people to be as healthy as possible so that when they decide, if they decide they want to stop, they, they have the opportunity to do so and they have the strength to do so. And then for, for, for others, I think, uh, just trying to reduce risk and, and really, uh, you know, thinking of harm reduction as part of the continuum of services. Uh, prevention is, is a huge issue, and it's, it's prevention at all ages. And then if, as the risk goes up, trying to reduce that risk as much as possible uh, and, and to help uh, people be as healthy as they possibly can be. So I do think that it's going to be, I think, harm reduction, treatment, prevention, recovery are all component parts of a, of a comprehensive strategy that are really important. The state has authorized the opening of what are called crisis stabilization centers in counties across the state with a stipulation that they can open if they have the funding to open. Do you see that as the biggest barrier here in terms of addressing both mental health and substance use in terms of the resources? Does the state just need to put money into this to get better? I think that's part of the answer, but I think the other thing is to re-examine, you, know, uh, you know, we have a lot of money that we're investing. Yeah. And are we investing it in the right places? We have a huge, huge system. But do we, can we justify spending as much money on these huge uh, 
buildings and grounds, et cetera, serving a relatively small number of people. And, and then, or there are underfunded services. If you think about recovery services, there's many counties in this state that don't have a recovery center. Yeah. There's many counties and many schools, many uh, senior centers that don't have prevention services. So there's, there's a, uh, it's a combination of using our resources that we already have in the system effectively and efficiently, and then saying, you know, where are the areas? Uh, and are we serious about this? That, that's the other thing. I mean, are we really serious about reversing? When we wanted to deal with uh, COVID, we were serious. We really dealt with COVID, yeah. We, we were serious, and we had, uh, we had the statistics on the number of people who died uh, yesterday, you yeah. know, literally 24 hours. Uh, we're still adding the numbers up for 2022 and 2020, early 2023. I mean, so we're not even close to responding with that same level of urgency. You know, we've talked about government. Are insurance companies also part of the problem here or are they part of the solution? When I see, um, or I'll tell you my personal story just briefly is, and I mentioned this on the show before, is um, when I was looking for my most recent therapist, it was so difficult because nobody was in network for my insurance company and nobody who was in network was close to me and I wasn't really comfortable with virtual therapy. I wanted to do something in person. Do insurance companies need to change here or is it the government that needs to do something? So we'll start with your question about are they the part of the problem, part of the solution? Yeah. The answer is yes. They are part of the solution, and yes, they are part of the problem. And you, 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 you uh, I think, hit the bullseye. Uh, to, you know, to the extent that um, there's a reasonable rate for services, right? What does it cost to have a therapist, a psychiatrist, a social worker appear, provide the services that you need? What does it cost? Right. At a minimum, the insurance rates should cover the cost of providing the service. If every time somebody walks through the door, the program that you're going to or the therapist you're going to is going to lose money, at some point they say, I can't take those people anymore. I can't afford to treat somebody who has insurance that pays me less than what it costs me. And that decision is made. It is not unusual to find therapists that don't accept people who have commercial insurance. That's yes. not okay. Right? So, again, I think uh, we've got to really work to make sure that that program and again this is a in unity alliance uh, is is very very strong on on developing a positive relationship with with health plans uh, to help move in a good direction but also confronting uh, the you know the the issues and so we're, that's something that's right on our radar right now and and uh, it's reasonable for any employer to expect that when they pay their premiums for mental health services for addiction services that their employees are going to be able to find a therapist and, and, and get the help that they need. That's reasonable. Right. I mean, this is just such a big issue area. We could talk about this for hours. There are so many different parts to it, from insurance to care to what the state does, that um, there's a little bit too much to unpack and we're out of time. <laughs> John Coppola, co-director of Inunity Alliance. And you previously served as executive director of Alcoholism and Substance Use Providers of New York State. Thank you so much. Oh, very happy to be with you. Thank you. Of course. And if you or someone you know is struggling with substance use or their mental health, we'll post some resources on our website. As always, that's at nynow.org. And staying now with mental health and addiction. As you know by now, those are two issues that affect everyone. But a special focus is being placed on children in New York schools and young adults. That's where youth peer advocates come in. 
Those are people who faced their own challenges with their mental health or addiction and now want to help others do the same. So in this story from producer Catherine Rafferty, we look at how they do it and the difference they can make. In March of this year, Governor Hochul launched a statewide series of listening sessions aimed at exploring the issues impacting the mental health of youth throughout New York State, coordinated by the State Office of Mental Health and the Office of Children and Family Services. The sessions were conducted with approximately 200 youth in five locations across the state. It was part of Governor Hochul's $1 billion plan to overhaul New York State's mental health continuum of care. That includes $30 million to expand school-based mental health services, $10 million to strengthen suicide prevention programs for high-risk youth, and $12 million for programs that promote early childhood development and in-home crisis intervention treatment for children and teens. Sarah Kuriakos, Associate Commissioner in the Division of Integrated Community Services for Children and Families in the Office of Mental Health, says the listening tour centered on Youth Voice. Governor Hochul really wanted to make sure that any of the policies and programs that were put out that she invested in, that she directed, had at the very center the people who would be affected the most, which is young people. What she asked us to do, along with our sister agency, the Office for Children and Family Services, is to uh, help her go around to the entire state um, and find Um, places where young people, middle schoolers and high schoolers, so 13 to 18 year olds, could come together um, and really tell us what's life been like for them since the pandemic. What's going well? What's not going well? How do things feel for them? How do things feel for their peers? The listening tour breakout groups were facilitated by youth peer advocates. A youth peer advocate is someone 18 to 30 years old who self-identifies as a person who has firsthand experience with social, emotional, medical, developmental, substance use, and or behavioral challenges. Families Together in New York administers the New York State Youth Peer Advocate credential. Paige Pierce is the CEO of Families Together in New York. Families Together started in the mid-90s. by parents who had children um, mostly involved in the mental health system. And their, I, the idea was really that um, families were feeling frustrated that the system wasn't responsive to their needs. And there was a system designed to m- meet the needs of kids in the mental health system and their families, but it wasn't taking into account the family's perspective. And so often we were seen as part of the problem instead of part of the solution. And our philosophy is nothing about us without us, that families and young people who are peers with lived experience have expertise that can help policymakers make better decisions and help in general with anything when you're talking about a person or a family. Youth Power is a network hosted by Families Together that is run for and by youth and young adults to ensure young people have meaningful involvement on all levels of the services they receive. Justice Walcott, director of Youth Power at Families Together, says the network allows young people to use their experience to take action. Advocates in the in child serving systems, their importance is to hold folks accountable and to educate their peers, right? To let young people know that their voice does matter, that their experiences are valid, that their emotions are valid, and give them the tools to articulately work through whatever they're feeling and turn any trauma, any pain, any anything that they feel was 
done wrongly to them um, into a form of power, right? Into a form of advocacy and move with that advocacy into policy, right? And, and legislation. So it's, it's definitely um, to empower or give young people the, the tools to empower themselves. Rachel Carr Ray Petty is a youth peer specialist at the Mental Health Association of Westchester. Her lived experience informs her advocacy and work with youth, she says. From my experience going in and out of special education, I feel like my voice was never heard or taken seriously. And then later on in life, I suffered from a traumatic brain injury where I had to really learn how to be an advocate for myself. Youth peers are not focused on prescribing medications or diagnosing. They are more there to build a rapport and helping the youth make their voice heard, whether it's in treatment, in school environments, or even at home. A report from the tour was released at the state's Youth Mental Health Summit, which took place in June in New York City. The report highlighted the intersections of racism and mental health, as well as an increase in presentation for suicidal and self-harming behaviors in emergency settings in teenage girls and LGBTQ-identifying youth. Several overall themes emerged from the tour, including the lingering impacts of the pandemic, the benefits and risks of social media, a need for multiple school and community-based approaches to assist in the development of interpersonal skills, and a need for increased representation of different demographics in the mental health workforce. The U.S. is currently facing a mental health care workforce shortage. By 2025, the U.S. will be short about 31,000 full-time equivalent mental health practitioners, according to the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Youth peer advocates are part of that workforce. Paige Pierce, CEO of Families Together in New York, says that youth peer advocates need fair compensation to attract more people into the profession. As a whole, as an organization, we are very uh, committed to uh, having a cost of living adjustment for workers and programs that, in the community that serve our young people and their families, um, including our youth peer advocates and our family peer advocates that Justice described uh, that we train and credential they need to make a living wage so that they can feed their families and pay their rent and stay in the field. One of the next steps the report identified was incorporating recommendations from the youth listening sessions to inform the expansion and development of school-based clinic and prevention services and the formation of a youth advisory board and parent caregiver advisory boards. OMH is in the process of forming those advisory boards to start convening in 2024. OMH also has plans for more school-based mental health clinics around the state. We have about 1,100 clinics already, um, and we offered startup for more clinics. I anticipate that we will have more than 100 new clinics, and we are planning to continue doing startup um, in addition to a rate increase for school-based mental health clinics so that we can um, ensure that young people really get access to those critical services in schools. Rachel Carr Ray Petty, Youth Peer Specialist at Mental Health Association of Westchester, would like to see more youth peer advocates a part of those systems of care going forward. I think it's more peer support that needs to be implemented across the treatment plans in schools and in community centers. Uh, it's creating a positive, safe affirmation environment for the youth while alleviating some of the pressure off of the parents and guardians. Other solutions that could be providing education to family members 
So whether it's about the child's diagnosis or medication, just so then the parents know that they have support as well as being their caregiver. And we just need to shift our perspective of treatment in a more holistic, full, family-oriented, community-centered approach. And if you want more information on the Youth Peer Advocate Program, we'll put a link on our website. Again, that's at nynow.org. And a quick programming note before we let you go. After four years, this is my last show as your host, and it has been a busy four years. Two months after I came on board, the COVID-19 pandemic exploded in New York City, but we stayed on the air every week and got through it together. Then there was in 2021, when former Governor Andrew Cuomo was accused of sexual harassment and mishandling data on the pandemic. Cuomo resigned, and we were there to tell you all about it. Just like how we've been here since, covering the rise of Kathy Hochul, the first woman to become governor. And last year, we spent a lot of time covering the election for governor. We interviewed Hochul, which was the first time in more than a decade that a sitting governor appeared on this show. And we also spoke with her challengers on both sides of the aisle. Former Congressman Lee Zeldin came closer than any other Republican in nearly two decades to becoming governor. And this year, we did our best, as always, to bring you the latest news from the state capitol. But all good things must come to an end. And while I'm leaving, New York Now will continue. I had one motto producing this show each week, and that was a better tomorrow. That was my goal each week, to help create a better tomorrow for you, me, and everyone else in this state. And that's something I think we can all still strive for if we set aside our differences, put our minds and our hearts together and get to work. After all, tomorrow is always just one dream away. So that's where I'll leave it. Thank you to all our viewers who watch the show or listen to the podcast. And as always, thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well. Funding for New York Now is provided by WNET and by the New York State Education Department.